Welcome to the Writing Westward podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today we will explore early Western literature and the unknown history of women authors in the developments of the genre. Our guest, Professor Victoria Lamont, is the author of Westerns, A Women's History. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. In each episode of this podcast, we host a conversation with an author or scholar of new work that explores the North American West. Disciplines will vary, the length of conversations will likely range dramatically, but we hope that each conversation will introduce you to new work, provoke as many questions as they provide answers, and inspire you to learn more about the North American West as a region, as well as its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, funding opportunities for research and events, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. Follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find a list of podcast episodes and listen on the Red Center website and clicking on the Writing Westward Podcast tab at the top of the page. You can also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and various other podcast networks and distributors. Thanks for listening. The prevailing story of how Western novels developed into a serious genre of literature begins with Owen Wister's 1902 novel, The Virginian. From there on out, much of the field of Western literature has been quite gendered and divided, with male authors like Wister, Zane Grey, or Louis L'Amour writing the serious Western fiction, and female authors writing primarily Western romance. Victoria Lamont, an associate professor of English at the University of Waterloo, upends this gendered telling of how the Western novel came to be. Her book, Westerns, A Women's History, was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2016, and it reveals a very different story. Some 12 years before Wister published The Virginian, a woman named Emma Ghent Curtis published a Western novel that featured some of the exact types of Western characters that Owen Wister is often credited with establishing as stock characters for the genre. In our conversation with Lamont, we explore this and some other early works by female Western novelists. We discuss the publishing and reading world they inhabited, and we explore how the stories these women told were both similar to and distinct from the more well-known texts. Professor Victoria Lamont, welcome to our program, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I I spent some time with your book a few days ago as I was explaining. I as is my habit, I, I, I take a hammock up into the mountains and I sway in the breeze and, and read and take notes. And it took me a lot longer to get through than I thought it would because I kept on rereading passages and it was just absolutely fascinating. A great book. Oh, thank you so much. Can, can I ask, how did, how did you come to this topic? I started working on this um, way back in graduate school when I was uh, working on a master's at the University of Guelph with uh, Christine Bold, who, whose work you might um, be familiar with. We, we just had her here on campus oh, a couple months go. ago. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I took a course from her um, called Women in the West. Um, and uh, I learned about, uh, in that course, I learned about a woman called B.M. Bauer. Um, and she just fascinating, fascinated me. She was uh, prolific author of popular westerns and um 
it just was a contradiction in terms. Everything I had thought about popular Westerns associated them with men and male writers and male readers. Um, and yet here was uh, this woman writer who was uh, a household name when she was um, writing. And uh, I just investigated more and I found more and more writers and I was really fascinated um, with their work and it all just grew from there. Well, this is something I thought we might get to towards the end, but we might as well do it now. Can you define what you call a quality Western? How, how does that differ from other forms of Western, early Western literature? What is a quality uh, Western novel? I should be clear that I don't mean that to say that they're any better um, than any other yes, yeah. <laughs> Western. I, it's a historical category. It has to do with, it, it comes from the way that publishers themselves uh, thought about what they were doing. Um, and so some publishers um, were careful to differentiate themselves from mass-produced fiction. So the term that they would use would be the quality press or we're quality publishers. So this is real literature. It's not dime novel. Yeah, um, exactly. Kind of lower brow. Yeah, so that's how it's not necessarily... A, a kind of uh, judgment on the value of those works aesthetically. Well, so the, the reason I wanted to get this definition or kind of in our minds is because you explained that in years later, the narrative of how the quality Western or kind of this more kind of proper no Western novel starts as a genre is, mm -hmm. is one of men, male writers. And uh, in, in, I think maybe actually be, be the last chapter of your book, um, you explain how women become mm -hmm. more associated with Western romance novels, but that that's all a development that comes much later than the period that you're talking about uh, throughout your book. Can you kind of explain how the, the Western novel becomes a masculinized genre? Right. So the, the kind of conventional or the maybe more familiar history of the Western as we know it um, starts with Owen Wister's The Virginian. And the kind of narrative I inherited when I first came into this subject was that Owen Wister kind of saves the Western or makes it respectable again after it had been taken over by dime novels. Yeah. And then from there, you have other Western writers like Zane Grey and Max Brand and uh, Louis L'Amour who, who basically imitate Owen Wister. But I kind of looked in my research more closely at that moment when The Virginian is published. And there's no arguing that The Virginian was an important book and it um, attracted a lot of attention. It was a bestseller in ways that novels, Western yeah, novels hadn't yeah. done before, right? In, and it was published by a so-called quality publisher, Macmillan. Um, so uh, um, it, yeah. it wasn't just another dime novel. But if you look really closely at, at that very early moment, you see quite, and even before that moment, you see a lot of um, women writers who are also writing um, what you could characterize as Westerns. So why then did we inherit, because this is the narrative I inherited it as well. Yeah. It's also the narrative I've taught. Um, so, sure, so, okay. <laughs> you know, which uh, in, you know, in the next uh, version of my lectures, I'll be re revising all of this. Okay, so. I so why did that why did that become the narrative we inherited? How did those women get written out of the narrative? 
those early female authors? Uh, well, they're, so they're publishing, those first women are publishing um, in the very early pulp magazines. This is before pulp magazines between about 19, the early 1900s and uh, World War One. And they looked a lot different than the later pulp magazines that are maybe now familiar to us looked. Um, so these were um, general fiction magazines, and they really tried to imitate the so-called quality or slick magazines. And part of imitating those magazines and kind of claiming to be respectable was to appeal to women readers to produce quality fiction, your fiction had to be suitable to sort of be left on the table in the parlor for for the women of the house and, and maybe the, the kids to come across. And that was part of respectability at that time. Um, and so that's where we see um, the Western first becoming popularized. And a lot of the writers who are popularizing the Western in these early pulps are women, particularly uh, Bertha Muzzy Bauer was extremely, extremely prolific. And she was actually the first author to popularize the Western after Owen Wister. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, uh, and so these early um, pulp magazines aren't publishing the genres that we now identify with the pulp. They're, they're instead publishing kind of wide range of different types of stories to appeal to a wide range of readers. And they're not necessarily differentiating between stories for women and stories for men. Um, they're just stories. Um, when uh, B.M. Bauer started writing, she start, she was writing Western stories, um, not Westerns. The term Western hadn't yet been coined. But then what ha- what starts to happen, particularly after um, World War One, is that uh, West uh, pulp publishers um, start to experiment with um, marketing practices um, and niche readerships, um, and so they um, they look at the stories that they're offering and they um, start try they start to break them down into the genres that are familiar to us today. And one of the things um, they notice is that they're publishing, that their Westerns that they're publishing can be broken down, they think, into two different types of Westerns. One that is male-oriented, that is more adventure-based, mm-hmm. and one that is female-oriented and is um, more romance-based. Um, and so two different uh, Western magazines come into being during the 20s um, that are both uh, appealing, starting to, to address um, different gendered readerships. Um, so it's a kind of a marketing strategy that they start mm-hmm. to employ. So these two genres of Western, um, the Romance Western and the Adventure Western, come into being at almost exactly the same time in the early 1920s. But then something else happens uh, a few decades later when scholars start to pay attention to the popular Western as a subject of study, um, and they look back uh, um, and they kind of have internalized these gendered genres, these marketing categories, 
Um, but the other thing that they do is they um, construct the Western romance as an imitation. Um, and so they kind of um, almost uh, automatically, without really thinking it through, um, take on that kind of binary of the male is the original and the female is the imitation. And they have internalized that. And so they don't really pay attention to the Western romance as a Western in its own right, but they treat it as this kind of feminized imitation of a masculine original. And with that masculine original, some of these earlier uh, female authors are kind of then written out of the story somewhat because they don't fit they don't fit that narrative, do they? Uh, no, they they don't. The the very early ones are not. They don't see themselves as writing Western romances. They see them as writing Western stories. Yeah. The same way that Owen Wister saw himself as writing a Western story. Um, so the in the the very early kind of 20th century westerns are not really seen as writing for men. Um, they're seen as literature. They're seen as fiction. What also happened um, with the narrative is is um, that the dime novel um, got confused with these early westerns. But dime novels carried over a kind of a different idea about readers of cheap fiction from the from the 19th century. And this idea was that readers of cheap fiction were kind of juvenile in their tastes, and so they they did have more gendered tastes. Boys wanted to read boys' stuff, and girls wanted to read girls' stuff. Hmm. And I think that got confused um, with the kinds of Westerns that were being published in this um, uh, new kind of pulp that was trying to imitate the more expensive quality pulp magazines. So it's a bit of a complicated yeah. narrative. Um, well, why is it then in the you know the 60s and 70s and beyond when there's scholars studying Western women's literature, you know they 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 discover Willa Cather and others mm -hmm. and they and they they really dig into them and and mm -hmm. showcase uh, a number of female authors working in the field of Western mm -hmm. literature. Yeah. But yet yeah. these Western female novelists ha have not um, enjoyed quite the the, the rediscovery. That's a really good question. Um, there, there's more than one answer to that, um, or more than one part to my answer to that question. Um, but I think, um, first of all, the, those um, early um, scholars of uh, Western women writer, they also were working with those internalized category of the popular Western equals masculinity equals violence, um, violent conquest, and so on. So as a genre, they, they set it aside? Yeah, and so they looked then to um, more literary fiction, fiction that differentiated itself um, from uh, the popular Western and Willa Cather, um, you know, was had one. Was it a Pulitzer? I think she was. Um, you know, she was a prize so, winning, yeah. still in print. So she was kind of an obvious place for those scholars to go in terms of recovering um, a women's West. And but then the another reason is that almost all of the writers that I talk about in my book, if not all of them, were out of print. 
and so they just weren't known. Uh, so there's, so that's also uh, an important. Uh, I mean, uh, people like Willa Cather, she um, never really faded out of the out of um, the consciousness, um, the cultural consciousness, in the same way that someone like B. M. Bauer did. Mm-hmm. Well, let's. I mean, this is kind of long preamble. Uh, <laughs> um, let's get to the actual um, some of these case studies and these female authors you talk about in your book. Um, okay. Uh, and one of the most fascinating. So again, we have Owen Wister who publishes the Virginian in is it is it 1902? Yeah. Um, but a full 12 or 13 years prior, um, you open your book talking about Emma Gent Curtis and her book. Now, pr- pronounce the title of the book for me. I don't know how she pronounced it, but <laughs> I pronounce it the Administratrix. Okay, that that's close to what I was going to say as well. Okay. Um, which you present as a, a full, not just a, a kind of proper Western novel, a full 12 years before Wister's The Virginian, but one that plays with very similar themes, um, mm-hmm. very yeah. similar kind of character tropes. Um, yeah. You have all those kind of stock Western novel characters. So it wasn't just that there happened to be a female author writing a Western novel 12 years before him, but writing a very similar Western novel 12 years yeah. before him. Can you yeah. kind of lay, lay out um, Curtis's, I mean, quite briefly, like, what, what is this book, The Administra- the Administratrix? And maybe listeners who are familiar with the Virginian will, will clue into some of the similarities as you describe it. Uh, the Administratrix um, is about uh, a young woman um, who comes out west to be a school teacher. Um, and that will sound familiar, I think, to a lot of the listeners. Uh, and she falls in love. Um, she overcomes her prejudices to fall in love with a cowboy who she at first deems beneath her station. Um, but she overcomes her prejudices, falls in love and marries him. Whereas the Virginian ends with the um, marriage um, of Molly to the Virginian. In the administratrix, um, the school teacher, she marries her cowboy and they start a, they run a household together. They, she helps him run the ranch. Um, and uh, um, he is, um, there's, a, there's a neighboring ranch that becomes jealous of him because he's so successful. Um, and so he is set up, um, he is wrongly accused of cattle rustling and um, he's lynched by a mob and killed. And um, so Mary uh, goes into hiding and into mourning, um, and she emerges uh, sometime later in disguise, and she calls herself, uh, disguised as a young cowboy, and she calls herself Mose. And so the cowboy Mose uh, infiltrates the neighboring ranch where she suspects the murderers um, are working um, in order to find her husband's murderers and um, get revenge. Which she does. Which um, which she does, yes. I don't know. Uh, do you want me to talk about the ending or should we let people discover it? Well, maybe, yeah, maybe we don't want them to spoil it, but um, <laughs> it ends in quite fantastic fashion. It does. With blood and um, gore and uh, some, some very Quentin Tarantino. Yes. <laughs> um, vibes. I wonder if he if he read this when he was 
when he was writing his Kill Bill series, perhaps. Um, I don't know if, <laughs> if it was. Uh, I don't know if anyone knew about it when Kill Bill came on. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Um, so twelve years later, Owen Wister then uh, writes the Virginian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, he's not alone in his in his publishing. Um, in the same year, you write about Francis McElrath. Ex- yes. Yeah. Who, who writes a book called The Rustler? Yeah. Um, which takes as its backdrop the Johnson County War, just yeah. like the Virginian. Yeah. Um, offering even more thematic overlap. Um, yeah. How is her take? This, this kind of violent um, cattle rustling frontier vigilante violence. Um, scene. How does uh, her, the rustler, uh, play out differently than Wister's The Virginian? Um, well, uh, so as you know, in The Virginian, there's a very clear delineation between the uh, good cowboy and the bad rustler. Um, so the cowboy is loyal to um, the cattle owners, the big ranches, and the rustlers um, just want to make a, a quick buck um, they don't have a work ethic, um, and and so on, and and so those lines are clearly delineated. Um, I would say that McElrath's account is much closer um, to the history of the Johnson County War, um, that there was not uh, that the the myth of the cattle rustler, and this is something Christine Bold talks about in um, in her book, um, The Frontier Club. Um, the the myth of the cattle rustler was um, something that the large cattle companies kind of fabricated um, in order to um, it was a, a PR campaign yeah right? as a PR campaign and that they're um, uh, and and so uh, McElrath's account is much more sympathetic with the so-called cattle rustler so she looks into his motives uh, things like kind of unfair wages um, and exploitative um, conditions um, and um, various kind of unjust treatments of, of, of the cowboy. For example, I think if you got married, you could get fired. And um, they uh, wrestlers were blamed. Um, there was a particularly bad winter when there were um, huge losses of, of cattle, and these were blamed on so-called um, rustlers, but it was really, um, the problem really resided in the unsustainability of the industry um, itself. And um, so McElrath's account is much more sympathetic with um, the so-called um, cattle rustler. Um, another thing she goes into, which is also um, you find in the history of the Johnson County War, um, is that the cowboys accused of, rustle, of rustling were the same ones who um, organized cowboys in um, kind of ad hoc unions um, in order to... Um, uh, fight for their right to own their own cattle, for example. Cowboy, the cattle companies forbid their cowboys from owning their own cattle and kind of starting their own little herds. Um, and so uh, Francis McElrath um, takes on um, these details that are expunged from the Virginian. And, and Owen Wister himself um, uh, would have known about these things as, as well. 
Um, he knew people who were involved in the Johnson County War, but he kind of simpli he simplified details that kind of complica complicated the view of the of the um, dichotomy between the good cattle rancher, the honest cattle rancher, and the dishonest cattle thief. So he's not talking about class conflict and labor uh, strife and so forth, like uh, McElrath is, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, she then presents um, the a female protagonist mm -hmm. and kind of female-led reform. So if if in the Rustler, class conflict is the source of violence, whereas in the Virginian, it's this conflict between kind of kind of between good and evil, good guys and bad guys, white hats and mm -hmm. black hats, right? Exactly. Yeah. So in the in the Rustler, class conflict is the source of violence, and and she pre presents a very gendered um, solution in a way. <laughs> yeah. Can you you want to describe that a little bit for us? Um, yeah, so uh, the wrestler also involves a romance um, between a kind of well-to-do female um, and a, a cowboy who is perceived to be beneath her station. This is um, a familiar trope already. Yes, right? yes. Um, but in this case, um, and the female does, the, um, the heroine does reject the cowboy um, when he professes his love to her and that's what makes him become a, uh, ultimately triggers him to become a, a cattle rustler he's already experienced a lot of he comes from a broken home and he's experienced a lot of uh, poverty in his life but being rejected by this upper class woman really sends him over the edge and so he becomes, turns him to the life of crime exactly he turns to a life of crime um, and so when um, she realizes what she's done um, after, you know, a complicated series of events, um, she realizes her role in his um, decline, his moral decline, um, and decides that she's responsible. And so she becomes a reformer. Um, and um, this is the the the. Uh, the period of the woman reformer in American history. Um, there are women's clubs and um, the settlement house movement and um, so on. And there's this, uh, this uh, view in society that women really do have um, the power and the responsibility of kind of healing a lot of the social divisions in the society. And so she becomes um, a Western woman reformer and she, um, goes to live among the cowboy rustlers. She starts a school for the um, rustler children, children yeah. so that they don't, so that they can raise themselves up and have more opportunities than their parents did. So for her, so in the Virginian, you have um, the resolution through the violent confrontation um, between the Virginian and um, Trampas. And um, in the wrestler, you have the resolution of the conflict uh, through the woman reformer um, who uh, uh, goes out and works among um, the disadvantaged people of the West. Hmm. Do you think that this um, not just female centric um, reform plot, but mm -hmm. um, but just the kind of larger political message kind of in this progressive era, do you think that had something to do with it not having the impact that the Virginian did? 
No, I, th- I think sometimes, you know, we have this famous example of Upton Sinclair in the jungle. Mm. And he lamented how he tried to hit us in the heart, you know, with mm. his, his story of socialism was really his point, and he mm-hmm. accidentally hit us in the gut. And uh, one mm-hmm. time I had my students read the, um, like, the early unabridged drafts that he had mm-hmm. intended to publish, and it is much longer on the politics. And the publisher mm-hmm. said, no, they, that's not going to fly. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious, do you think that the political message there um, had anything to do with... Uh, with with the with Worcester's the Virginian kind of being the one that's remembered or yeah, the one that's really I, catches I, on. It's so. I mean, I can only speculate on on that. Um, uh, I yeah, I honestly don't know. I hmm. I honestly don't know. Well, how are these two books? Um, Curtis's 1889, The Administratrix. Mm-hmm. And McElrath, the Rustler, in 1902. How do they sell? How are they received at the time? Um, Administratrix, as far as I can tell, it was um, published by a very small, obscure publisher. I don't know how uh, how much circulation it got. Probably limit. It may even have been a vanity publication. I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, uh, so it got limited circulation. Um, the Rustler uh, was fairly well reviewed. Um, it got reviews in quite a lot of um, magazines and newspapers of the time. Um, uh, but um, uh, neither of these books got the kind of um, publicity resources put into them that the Virginian did. Um, uh, the, um, so there's, there's the larger kind of context in which male writers and women writers are working in and male writers tend to be, um, much more well-connected. Um, they get a lot more resources thrown behind their work by publishers. Um, and particularly when you're looking at the Westerns, because the women who are writing Westerns are living out in the West. Um, and they don't have the kinds of um, social connections um, and the kind of habitus in terms of writing professionally that um, people like Worcester and Zane Grey do. Um, So that's one factor that we can look at and have the evidence to say, well, this is a factor that's going into why um, these books aren't circulating as much um, as um, comparable books comparable books by the male authors Mm -hmm. you know who knows maybe if um the rustler did get the resources put behind it that the virginian got it might have been a bestseller too i mean there were kind of sentimental writers women writers who were making best the, the bestseller list at this time who were kind of pointing to um social ills and and so on so i don't know yeah there's there's a readership for you know reform yes ideas at the time well you get into this a little bit well you spend a whole chapter about um about pseudonyms and Mm. um you have um i already forgot lockhart's first name carolyn um carolyn lockhart who writes under her own name and she was pretty well known Mm -hmm. um but bm bauer who you already mentioned largely did not she wrote under this pseudonym mm-hmm. and it seems that her publisher when she at one point tries to strong i think actually at multiple point tries to make the case with her publisher that uh, you know some people have found out that i'm 
a woman and I, I think this would actually help us sell better. There's interest in having uh, a, these female authored texts. Mm -hmm. and, and what does her publisher say? Um, her publisher says that they're worried um, that um, her sales will, will suffer if yeah. it's discovered that B.M. Bauer is a woman. Um, so they um, uh, discouraged her from doing any publicity. Which seems to perhaps reinforce your idea that, you know, of kind of the, the gendered support that different authors receive in terms of publicity and, and yeah. resources behind their books and so forth, at least in the industry, um, even with a, with a well-selling author. Yeah. There was a fear that if her gender was revealed, it would hurt sales. It, yeah, but I, I and I, I, I try to make a point of this in my book is that Bauer is an exception to the other women I write about who did write in their own names. Um, and so to a certain extent, the idea that um, that women writers of Westerns had to write behind pseudonyms is a bit of a myth. I think in Bauer's case, she that her publisher, her publishers just wanted to control her and um, not allowing her to do publicity was a way of controlling her. Um, you see the same thing happening in the film industry at about the same time. The studios are really against um, any pub uh, listing the names of the cast in their films, for example, um, because then they they uh, lose a lot of control um, to their actors. Hmm. And I think that's the, the same thing happening in the case of B.M. Bauer. She was a kind of victim of her own success because she was making so much money for um, her publishers, um, that, uh, if, um, they let her do publicity, um, she might get scooped up by someone else who'd offer her more money. Um, and, uh, so that it was really a, a way of controlling her. Hmm. You talk about one more really interesting case study that of, um, Morning Dove. Mm. Um, yeah. and, and how do you pronounce the name of the book here? Um, Kagewa? Uh, uh, um, Katsuya. Okay. Katsuya. Um, written by um, uh, not just a, a female author, but um, a native woman. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit um, briefly about her story as well? Because this adds again a, a, another just fascinating wrinkle to this early history <laughs> of, of, of female yeah. Western uh, authors, and one that I was not anticipating when I picked up, up your book. Yeah, Morning Dove's uh, novel, Katsuya, is um, pretty well known to scholars of um, indigenous writing, um, but not so well known um, to perhaps scholars of the popular Western. Um, but she, uh, she um, lived on the, um, uh, uh, she lived near Seattle. Um, on the Colville Reservation, and um, uh, uh, she was a Salish speaker. She identified with um, the Okanagan tribe, um, and uh, she was exposed to Westerns uh, through a, um, a young white man who lived with her family for a time. He was a, a teenager. Um, and she talks about him in her memoir, and he read 
um, what he called yellowback novels, and that's and he would lend them to her, and that's how she learned to read was through reading um, uh, Pulp Fiction, and that's where she was exposed to westerns, and um, she decided to write her own western from an indigenous point of view, and so that's where Kojuia um, or Katsuya um, came from. Uh, and she had uh, written a manuscript by 1914, and um, in 1914 she met um, an Anglo-American man um, uh, from the area, and uh, he kind of took up the the cause of helping her to publish um, her novel, and part of helping her publish it was um, editing the novel novel to revise the language. He interjected political commentary um, into the novel. So they collaborated to um, write a Western, but a Western from an indigenous perspective. And, and again, this runs counter to, uh, to so many kind of narratives that, you know, that I and others have inherited about not just Western literature, but indigenous literature. There, there were other, um, you know, literate natives that were writing at the time, but they were mm -hmm. uh, quite often ethnographers, um, mm -hmm. uh, authors who were, um, you know, presenting um, the histories of their people or um, recording oral traditions and so forth. Mm -hmm. And and she d definitely doesn't fit into this, to that paradigm, does she? Uh, no. Um, a lot of other native writing um, or uh, from um, the period um, was, or, you know, one of the, one of the opportunities to become writers, um, that w was more widely available to Indigenous people was that of the so-called native informant. Yeah. Um, so you would have anthropologists traveling among, um, the reservations, um, as, uh, recruiting, educated native people to um, tell their tell the stories share their folklore share their traditions um, because the widespread belief um, in anglo-american society was that the tribes would be assimilated and so um, their cultures needed to be preserved yeah, and this vanishing indian idea yes yeah um, and so that was the the opportunity to become a, a, a writer um, that was um, most available um, at the time. Um, but uh, uh, Morning Dove didn't come at it that way. She came at it a much different way um, through an encounter with this genre. And uh, the Western, the popular Western, um, it's interesting because, you know, we identify it so much um, with um, native genocide, um, but she also saw it as a way of telling a different story um, about herself and her people um, instead of that kind of story of, you know, the dying civilization. She used the Western to tell a story about indigenous resistance. Um, and so in um, Katsuya, uh, she tells the story of an encounter between a young mixed blood um, woman who lives on the, I think she sets it in the Flathead Reservation, not her own reservation, 
um, and uh, her encounter with an Anglo-American who pretends to fall in love with her, um, but really he is after her allotment. This is the period of the of um, the land, yeah. division of reservation into in, reservations into individually owned allotments. Um, and so he's after her allotment. And she eventually, um, at first she falls in love with him and she's in danger of being seduced by him. But she uh, eventually, um, through actually reconnecting with the wisdom of her tribe um, and reconnecting with other members of her tribe, she figures out what he's up to and is able to resist him. So native tradition and ritual actually um, comes yeah. to save her in, in this yeah. in this book, or is kind of in a way her, this her salvation. Right? And the other thing that the Western does for her that I found really interesting when I first read this book was, um, as native informants, um, in indigenous writers sort of were pressured to depict themselves as kind of belonging to the past. Um, and uh, the Western gave Morning Dove a way of um, representing her experience as part of the modern world um, uh, um, because of that kind of trope of the encounter between um, uh, the wilderness and civilization. So um, she saw that as an opportunity to tell a different story. Um, was her, how was her, that book received at the time? I know that, that indigenous uh, literature scholars have, have recovered yes. and talked about it quite a yes. bit. But. Um, it's, it's hard, to, again, it's, it's hard to know because we don't have, we just don't have access to, in, in a lot of cases, we just don't know who read it, what they thought about it. It was not widely reviewed. So it's it's re I think it got her into trouble uh, on her own reservation. I think a lot of people on her own reservation uh, read it, and s there was some objection to it. But no, it's 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 really hard to know. And but she doesn't enter this the kind of intelligentsia, the the growing group of 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 native voices that. Um are talking about native issues in the teens and 20s and 30s, does she? Um, yeah, she does. She she remained an activist. She was involved in tribal politics. Um, but she was also, she lived in very challenging conditions. She worked um, grueling manual labor jobs, you know, harvesting um, crops and, and so on. She had um, health problems that are probably connected, you know, to um, inadequate um, access to to health care and and difficult working conditions. Um, and uh, so even despite these challenges, uh, she did remain uh, active in uh, tribal politics. Uh, she kept writing. She wrote. Um, what was called at the time folklore, which was very popular. So she wrote a book yeah. of um, folklore called Coyote Stories. So she does kind of then take on the more uh, familiar native informant yeah. role of writing ethnography and, yeah, and folklore I, and, and so forth. And her collaborator, um, Lucillus McWhorter, kind of um, pushed her in that direction um, a little bit. 
Um, was there more of a market for that? There was, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Moving forward with your with your work, what, what do you hope that the, you know, be it your, your scholarly community, um, the general public or fans of Western literature, what do you hope that they're going to take away from uh, from your book? Um, well, I really hope that we can put the old narrative to rest um, and just start reading men and women writers side by side when we talk about popular Westerns. Um, and I'm not, I'm not the first scholar to point out, hey, there was a woman writing here. Um, that's actually been going on for a long time. I mean, James Fenimore Cooper was writing in conversation with women. The Dime novel was written in conversation with women writers. You have Anna Stevens um, writing Malaska, the first Dime novel. Um, uh, and but yet that old narrative just stays so um, entrenched, and it just keeps on getting reiterated and reiterated. And I'm and I'm hoping um, that this work will. Uh, it, encourage you know teachers and and students to instead of seeing women as these aberrations or these exceptions to see them as part of the tradition um, part of the creation of you know who who participated in the making of of the western yeah so that is my hope well one thing that I definitely took away is that not, not again. Not just that. Oh, there were also women authors, um, but how you explain how these female authors were, were also writing very different stories, right? Yes. Um, and that their female characters were were written quite differently as well, mm -hmm. which is a point of analysis that you know, may go largely overlooked if if you if you had not opened this conversation up. So I know that in my own teaching and hopefully in many others, this this opens another a new avenue for. Looking at kind of the traditional Western novel, but then asking ourselves, how does the you know at times the gender of the author impact the type of story they're writing, the type of characters they're mm -hmm. writing, mm -hmm. um, and and even as you know, it's so so fascinating. Even with this comparison with Wister, even when so many of the characters fall into the exact same um, just stock character roles, <laughs> yes. Um, these female authors spun very different stories, which I just found fascinating. Yes, yeah. Well, um, thanks for joining us uh, on the podcast. Thank you and, so much uh, for having me. I had a really good time. Great. We, we look forward to seeing uh, what new things uh, you come up with in the future. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. I'm Brendan Rensink, and I serve here as the host, producer, and engineer, and pretty much everything else of the podcast. So if you have any praise or critique, I guess you can probably send it my way. I also serve here at the Red Center as the assistant director and as an assistant professor in the Department of History. So please contact me if you have any questions, not just about the podcast, but about the Red Center, our events, our funding, or anything else. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at micahdahlanderson.com. That's Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and include a link in the episode description.
If you live here in the Intermountain West, let me also mention our digital public history project, Intermountain Histories. You can visit it at intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and free mobile app, you can explore and read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Each is researched and written by students and professors at universities around the region. Otherwise, please subscribe to the podcast or follow us on Facebook or Twitter to receive notification when the next episode goes live. We have many more fascinating conversations on the horizon and hope that you'll join us.